Hi, Fresh Ed listeners. Before starting today's show, I want to acknowledge two mistakes I made in last week's episode. In my introduction, I stated that there are, quote, hundreds of billions of dollars, end quote, spent on aid each year. That number is likely exaggerated. A more accurate figure would be a hundred billion dollars. Also, I misstated Joel Samoff's title. Since Stanford University retired the title Consulting Professor in September 2016, his correct title should have been Adjunct Professor. I'm sorry for the mistakes. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Each year, the Comparative and International Education Society holds elections for the position of vice president. The way the society is organized means that this person will automatically become president after serving one year as vice president. Every vice president, in other words, steps up to hold the presidency. So vice president elections are a big deal. This year, two outstanding candidates have been nominated, David Post and Aaron Beneveau. Today, I interview each candidate back-to-back to to give CIES members a better understanding of their proposed agendas. I'm going to flip a coin to determine who will go first. Heads for Aaron and tails for David. It's heads. Aaron goes first. Aaron Benevo is director of the Global Education Monitoring Report, published by UNESCO. Later this year, he will return to the Department of Educational Policy and Leadership in the School of Education of SUNY Albany, where he serves as Professor of Global Education Policy. David Post is Professor of Education at Pennsylvania State University. You can check out freshedpodcast.com for voting details and each candidate's biography. And please remember, voting concludes on February 17th. Aaron Beneveau, welcome to Fresh Ed. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, first off, congratulations on being nominated for vice presidency of CIES. well, it's, a, it's an honor for, uh, for me to be uh, asked to uh, be in this position, and uh, if elected, I hope I can uh, serve, carry it out in a way that uh, people will consider that I've made a contribution to, uh, to the society. So why are you running for vice president? Um, in thinking about this question, I think that uh, I would like to draw on some of the as it were, unique aspects of my uh, personal professional career. Um, in many ways, I began uh, in, in, a, in a more traditional sense of uh, being an academic and getting a PhD and going off and becoming a professor uh, at uh, universities and integrating, as it were, insights from my training in comparative and international education and the work uh, that I did, whether it be the research or the teaching. But at some point, I decided to get much more involved in uh, the international policy world, um, 
uh, I had never in my earlier research, uh, you know, thought very much about the policy implications of the work that I did, but I was more interested in basic research questions. And in part uh, due to a, a kind of serendipitous meeting of, uh, with a colleague in Geneva uh, at some point, uh, now I guess it's been 15 years, I was asked to uh, contribute to uh, a big international meeting uh, of ministers of education and I had the opportunity to, to give to spend seven minutes giving them pearls of wisdom or some insights of what I thought uh, might be important for them to consider. This was in 2001. And since then uh, I've uh, uh, you know uh, put myself uh, forward as a candidate uh, to work at UNESCO in particular and what was known then as the EFA Global Monitoring Report team and spent four years in Paris <clears throat> then went back to academia, and then more recently went back to Paris as the director of the team. So over the last um, basically, uh, I guess, uh, eight years, uh, over the, the course of the last decade plus, I've spent quite a bit of time in a major international agency uh, that has a lot to do with looking at education policy and monitoring progress in the world. And in that sense, that's a fairly unique and unusual uh, kind of a vantage point to see how comparative international education flows through uh, this work. So in terms of my motivation, I think uh, getting back to your main question, I hope to be able to build stronger bridges uh, between the world of academia and uh, the world of uh, uh, policymaking uh, kind of at writ large and to find ways to ensure that our members are actively engaged in uh, various kinds of fora, both in their home countries uh, and in various kinds of international agencies. So I hope to be able to improve uh, the way in which we kind of move back and forth between uh, the scholarly world and the world of practice. Beyond, beyond bridging between the world of um, educational policy, global educational policy, and the academic community of, say, CIES, did you, did you learn anything else while working uh, at UNESCO in particular, but also the, the international policy field writ large? Did you learn anything in those spaces that you think will be um, helpful if, if you were elected to be on the board of CIES, to be the vice president of CIES, I should say? Uh, I think I've learned an enormous amount, uh, and a lot of it has to do with um, seeing the ways in which um, international policy organizations, <coughs> excuse me, need to draw on some of the best evidence, which is not always available or known to them, and often they rely on uh, existing networks or existing experts that they may have had um, experiences with in the past. <clears throat> I think there's a lot that we could do as an organization to provide uh, international agencies with uh, up-to-date scholarship that is ongoing among members of CIS so that they can uh, contribute uh, much more um, actively uh, in uh, the kinds of uh, evidence-based policymaking which has become the norm now. So I think that's one way that, uh, that I've learned how we can kind of uh, support this bridge. <clears throat> Another way is that I've you know, been able to develop uh, very strong networks uh, around the world um, having worked at UNESCO and uh, these networks, I think, would um, are ones that uh, could serve many different purposes to 
kind of invigorate uh, what we do at CIS, uh, make linkages with people who are in various positions in other parts of the world who may not be members of CIS. So it's a way of uh, reaching out and, in, and improving and diversifying, I think, uh, what we have now is a very uh, vibrant uh, uh, organization or society. And um, I also see the limits uh, and uh, the difficulties of working in international agencies. Um, I, I was lucky to be in a very particular uh, point uh, or place in, uh, at UNESCO, uh, and in many ways I had quite a lot of autonomy mm -hmm. in the work that I did, but uh, watching other colleagues in other parts of the education sector and other parts of uh, the international policy community, uh, there are many constraints on uh, the work that they do and the kind of time they have available and the budgets that they have available. So I think I've learned a little bit more about um, what, what, we, 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 what many of us, let's say, academics uh, see as the surface of what goes on in international agency. I've had the opportunity to kind of see what goes on behind the doors or under the surface in a way that I have a much greater appreciation for at least the, the passion and interest of those working in those areas, but often the, also the constraints and limitations to the work that they do. Many of the, the members of, or the employees of these different international agencies are members of CIES. What, what sort of role do you think um, the agencies, these international agencies, should have in our society beyond just simply you know, having some of their employees as members. Is there any other sort of organizational connection that we should be thinking about or, or that you would be thinking about if you were elected president or vice president? So I think, first of all, um, CIS as an organization, if we look historically, uh, has gone through a, a, somewhat of an evolution in thinking about its relationship to communities of practice and, and uh, the area of, of policy making and the connection with international agencies. Um, I think most of the founders of the society and for many years mainly focused on scholarship and academic research, uh, all of which was uh, entirely understandable and justified. And then, you know, the, the movement to in kind of embrace and incorporate people who did work uh, and often did very serious work in international agencies that uh, animated some of the main policies. Um, they became much more involved in the society. And I think that that has been, by and large, I think, uh, a positive development. It certainly uh, enhanced and enriched the kinds of uh, dialogues and conversations that have gone on in meetings. Um, it's allowed uh, many of our members to be uh, develop kind of critical uh, perspectives about the work going on in international agencies and perhaps people there are listening. So I think that this participation, which has been enhanced, is by and large a good thing. Uh, but certainly, uh, I think we need to find new ways to, you know, kind of once again, how do we link uh, what members, uh, especially young scholars, do uh, in their uh, work, um, and uh, whether or not this can be leveraged or be found to be meaningful in kind in in the in the kind of work that uh, would be needed um, by international agencies beyond what they typically have access to and some of the scholarship which may be more limited in terms of disciplinary focus and some of the issues that they address. I think our members have a lot to offer um, 
international agencies. So I would like to see, you know, a strengthening of those linkages in, in both ways. And I think it's a very healthy and um, respectful way for us to, to continue, you know, to, to improve upon uh, what has been, I think, in a, a positive uh, part, a positive evolution in, in, in the society in terms of bringing uh, people who represent international agencies into the society. And it seems like you have a foot in both worlds. Probably, yeah, more than, more than uh, probably foot and a hand. <laughs> <laughs> so what sort of priorities, what would be your top priorities um, if you were vice president and president of CIS? So um, I think, uh, drawing on what I've just said, I think one of the things that uh, we need to do better as a community is to um, find ways to... Um, you know, kind of make our work better known outside of the society, um, both in terms of other researchers who deal, who, who work in the area of education research, who may not know about some of the comparative and international education scholarship that goes on uh, by members of the society, but uh, then beyond that in other circles and institutes and in the policy world. Uh, so I think that uh, we need to find ways to kind of improve the visibility of the work that does go on. Um, I think one of the big uh, challenges that um, that we face in many North American universities is that uh, due to all kinds of uh, budgetary constraints, uh, positions that in the past had a strong social, cultural, and comparative international dimension have often been uh, undercut or uh, lost their, their mm -hmm. financial support and are no longer found uh, in colleges of education. So I think we need to find ways to enhance the reputation of the field um, in colleges of education to ensure that there are spots available, uh, institutional uh, positions available in colleges of education in which the work of comparativists uh, um, is uh, highlighted. Um, I think we have been blessed with uh, um, you know, developing a, a good uh, pool of funds that uh, that we have as a society, and I think we need to. One of my priorities would be to think how we can um, make the best use of the funds that we do have available, so that we spend them widely. Uh, certainly, a priority for me would be to find ways to support the the many young professionals and new scholars who have come into our society and who are at the beginning of their career. Uh, and staking out a kind of a new professional identity. So I think we need to do a lot to in, in kind of enhance the skills that they may need to succeed in their careers. <clears throat> and um, certainly I think that we need to uh, find ways to, uh, beyond the annual meeting, to uh, make sure that uh, we can meet either in regional um, uh, meetings or in, uh, like the recent uh, fall symposium that uh, took up the issue of uh, global learning metrics, I think that was a wonderful way to, to get people to kind of come together in a, in a smaller, more intimate setting and exchange ideas and views about uh, an important uh, issue uh, in the future. So all of these would be, I think, areas that I would like to um, help prioritize in the years to come. So you said that um, one of the priorities would be to um, make the society more well known in in policy circles outside of academia. What about um, inside public debates? Would you want? Do you envision the society having a role in 
you know, global or national public debates on education? Uh, the short answer is yes, um, but selectively and where there is clear relevance and expertise from our, from our society or from members of, of our society with respect to the issues, uh, you know, um, the issues uh, that are being addressed. So uh, certainly when it comes to, um, you know, the freedom of movement of uh, scholars and international students who uh, wish to uh, study in North American universities, I think it's very critical that we raise our voice. Um, there are many other issues that uh, not only pertain to us, but pertain to other uh, scholarly associations and professional associations. And so I think we need to find ways to um, develop coalitions with them and to address uh, what we consider to be you know, problematic uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, political decisions that are being made in Washington that affect us as a society and many other societies. Um, so, you know, to be short, I think there's a role to play. <clears throat> you know, the question is, uh, how much do we facilitate individual members of the society raising their voices on controversial issues or issues that are uh, pertinent uh, for whatever, uh, for political or, or policy-related reasons? And how much do we as a society do, you know, uh, the, the leadership and the board um, put their... Uh, support behind a statement, um, as we've seen recently, the board has done on two different occasions, and so there needs to be, um, you know, debate and discussion about uh, the relative importance of, of such a statement, and uh, I think these are these are certainly things that uh, we need to do in the future, and I can imagine we'll, we will need to do uh, many more times in the future. And so you would you would support the recent statement that the board put out that that condemned or, or not necessarily condemned, but said they did not agree with the, the ban on uh, people from those seven countries uh, coming into the U.S. that the Trump administration uh, proposed and passed through an executive order. Yes, I fully support the board's statement in this matter. And would you, would in the future, would you see the, the board getting more engaged in, in these sort of issues and, and making more announcements um, on other potential issues that may arise, particularly during the Trump presidency? Well, it remains to be seen. Uh, I, as I said, I think that these are things that uh, are likely to be uh, related to the work that we do and the membership that we wish to represent. I think that we need to think uh, how we can uh, because many of these issues, as I mentioned, are really not just related to CIS, but uh, have impact on many uh, professional and scholarly uh, associations. So I think we need to support any kind of coalition building so it isn't just a, a statement by CIS, but maybe a broader statement by many different associations that perhaps could arrive at um, a consensus uh, about uh, how they wish to address uh, various developments and uh, either political decrees or executive orders or even uh, legislative uh, decisions that are being made by the U.S. Congress. Um, so I would imagine that this will and this will become uh, more salient in the months and years to come. And I think we need to you know, think wisely how we go forward each time. But to the extent that there are things that directly impact the society and our membership, I think we should uh, debate them and uh, see if we can uh, 
have our voice be known um, in Washington and among uh, those who are, are making these decisions. So when did you join CIS? Um, about 30 years ago when I was a graduate student at Stanford. Uh, I think I went to my first CIS meeting in 85, 86, and uh, by and large have been attending uh, pretty much on a regular basis. There, there was a period of time when I was living abroad, it was a little bit difficult to travel to the U.S. each year, but I've always thought as, uh, of CIS as my intellectual and uh, professional home. Uh, certainly a neighborhood that I enjoyed coming to, uh, or community that I enjoyed uh, participating in and contributing to, uh, and that's always been the case over these, these past three decades. So over those past three decades, um, do you think, or has the society taken any wrong turns in your opinion? No, it's an interesting question. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I know that the, the society has struggled with the fact that it's become as big as it has, and uh, certainly, you know, for many years, <clears throat> it was enough to, uh, you know, get one of our host uh, universities to uh, <clears throat> allow us to uh, have the meeting at, at a, you know, at, at an academic institution and have, you know, various professors and their graduate students kind of organize meetings and so on and so forth. So uh, can't do that anymore. Uh, it's uh, certainly impossible. So. As we've grown, there have been um, you know, various kinds of growing pains, both in terms of the management of the annual meetings, but um, also uh, the management of the society and its business. And uh, I would say that you know, the board, from what I've been able to uh, understand, you know, has, has um, uh, struggled with finding the right uh, formula, the right uh, way of you know, the right kinds of people who, who are both knowledgeable about the work that we do, but who can take uh, some of the management, uh, you know, kind of day-to-day -day, uh, tasks uh, from the, uh, the president and the other uh, members of the board or, uh, and to ensure that, uh, you know, that everything runs smoothly. So I'm not sure wrong turns is the right, uh, the right formulation, but certainly... Um, there has been, you know, attempts to go in this direction and then kind of come back in a different direction. I think uh, it seems like we're in a good spot now, and that should be supported. Um, in terms of other things, uh, it's difficult to say. I, I don't, I mean, I don't recall things that I would consider to be a wrong turn. I think there are ideas that people have put forward, uh, let's say uh, regional meetings of CIS that uh, people thought would be a great way to... Uh, uh, enhance the commitment of graduate students and those who are studying comparative international education in various departments in different parts of the of the country. Um, that hasn't worked out maybe as well as uh, people would have liked, but um, I'm not sure. You know, I think it's important to try different um, try different uh, ideas and and see if uh, they work the way we had hoped. And if they don't, then uh, you go back and try something else. I think. Uh, this is the way the society has learned over time. And so, how do you how do you envision the future of the society? Like in ten years, what's in 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 the dream world? If you had a magic wand, what would CIES look like? Well, uh, I would hope that in ten years uh, we would be uh, continue to be large and growing, 
that we would be a vibrant place where people uh, come and are motivated and committed to contribute to the society. I would want uh, us to be a place that uh, maybe we are able to mobilize the knowledge that we create uh, in more uh, visible ways, uh, especially the critical knowledge that, uh, that uh, is often found in the society but often uh, maybe doesn't, uh, isn't seen elsewhere. Uh, I would really hope that uh, we would help to, the, you know, the to, to contribute to new positions in uh, North American universities uh, and uh, develop links uh, with, uh, you know, colleagues who have been appointed in those positions. And um, I, I would really hope that in 10 years that uh, ours would be a voice, in other words, uh, either CIS uh, as an entity or CIS uh, members would be m more active in having uh, the knowledge and work that goes on in the society uh, be known and be visible in a lot of the political and policy fora that discuss education policies and research. I think we have a lot to contribute. So I, I would say that um, you know, we need to do a better job of what we've been doing now and uh, kind of reach out and broaden our uh, visibility and our voice and perhaps also our impact in, uh, in what goes on. Well, Aaron Benevo, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed and best of luck with the election. Thanks very much, Will. Appreciate it. Aaron Benevo is director of the Global Education Monitoring Report, published by UNESCO. Later this year, he will return to the Department of Educational Policy and Leadership in the School of Education of SUNY Albany, where he serves as professor of global education policy. Now let's turn to my conversation with David Post. David Post, welcome to Fresh Ed. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for doing this with us, Will. So I guess, first off, congratulations on being nominated to be a candidate for the VP, the Vice Presidency of CIES. Thanks very much. It's nice to have people be minimally confident that I might be able to uh, do a decent job. So why, why are you running for the Vice Presidency? Uh, that's a big question, Will. Um, it, I don't want to uh, go into this too much right now, but but it has to do with what we just saw today from the CIS, which was... Uh, a statement about the uh, about President Trump's um, immigration ban and the politics surrounding that, and basically, I want the CIS to become less centered around just an annual meeting, and I want its officers to devote energy to the role of the United States and U.S. education. Now, I, this is not completely new. I'm not inventing this uh, on the spot because in the past, the CIS did take political stands and attempted to U.S. influence uh, U.S. Informa uh, international policy and uh, U.S. education policy. For example, um, a few years ago, there was a CIS group that I was uh, leading that uh, created an amicus curia brief uh, on it to the uh, Inter-American Human Rights Court. Uh, on behalf of uh, Haitian Dominicans who were denied rights to education. Or um, more recently, Mark Ginsburg, uh, my former co-editor, led the board to adopt a strong position for the United States paying dues to UNESCO. Um, once upon a time, the general meeting of the CIS used to have debates about current issues, for example, about the repatriation of Elian Gonzalez. Anyway, long story short, uh, facing the Trump government, we have a lot of work to do, and I don't want our elected officers to spend more time than 
absolutely necessary on the details of meeting organization. I want them to have time for more important organizing and mobilizing to promote goals of CIS more broadly. So how do you do that? How do you get the board to begin looking more outward rather than inward? Right. Well, today we saw a good example of that. The first thing is just to sensitize people that there is an issue. But the next part, of course, has to be connecting members and connecting constituent institutions to the levers of power in the United States. Now, most simply, that means contacting uh, officials in the in the in the State Department, contacting their elected representatives, uh, many many other organizations and civil society organizations that I belong to have not just made a statement, but have said, "Here's what you need to do: contact this person. Here's here's a here's a senator. For example, one of my senators, Pat Toomey, is wavering on a particular point, and I got messages from three organizations to put me in t- contact with his office." Now, I know that he's being overwhelmed by uh, opponents, for example, to this uh, this new travel ban, and that's got to have an impact. So I think the, the first thing to do is to, of course, sensi- make it, take a position, sensitize members to the issues, raise their consciousness, but then the next step has to be helping them to make contact. If we ever get to the point where we are like NAFSA, where we're large enough that we can do so, it would be very beneficial if we actually get a legislative uh, advocate, a lobbyist, uh, or even join with the lobbyists of other organizations like NAFSA to exert power. Uh, that's, that's what usually happens in the United States when, to uh, affect political change. So as a, as a, you know, a special interest group or as, as a, you know, potentially having a lobbyist uh, lobbying on behalf of the interests of CIES, you know, it just it makes me wonder um, whether or not CIES has uniform interests across the body, across all of its members. Because I could imagine a situation where there would be disagreement among members. So having a lobbyist might be rather challenging for CIES. We're not even there yet. We, the, in order to even formulate ideas, the first step would be to even to have. Uh, a social action or political action committee of the board with broad participation from members and invite people just as we have now ad hoc committees on uh, knowledge mobilization or uh, standing committees on new scholars. If we had a committee that that would put together some ideas, it would be broadly representative of the membership. And of course, we're not going to agree on everything, but I think that in the next few years, there's going to be a remarkable consensus among our members about uh, some of the policies we're going to be seeing from this Trump administration. So, so the, the key here is that the, you, you envision CIES taking much more, taking more political stances in the future. In general, the stance would be outward, not directed into the regulation of CIES, because I think now we've got a professional staff to do some of that. We don't need any more for the officers to spend an inordinate amount of time organizing the conferences, um, overseeing uh, the journal. The journal's in good hands. Indiana Conferences and Institutes is doing a great job uh, actually administering the meetings. The new executive directors are doing a great job overseeing Indiana conferences. So this leaves all kinds of space for the for the officers to do things out in the world, do things that relate to education policy, and especially in the United States. So, I mean, that's right. So CIS is a U.S. North America 
body of comparative education societies and and other regions and other countries have have their own have their own uh, right um so but at the same time CIES is a very international group has members from all over the world so how do you balance this being a US organization but also having members from all over the world that's a great question i guess that we can't ignore the fact that we're participants. We're all interested in international education policy, the use of standardized testing. For example, there was a great uh, conference uh, in, at, um, in Phoenix uh, recently uh, on this question, and, there, and it should continue. I'm not suggesting that, that, the, that CIS completely look inward, but as you exactly point out, we are incorporated in the United States. We don't claim to be the World Council. We we understand that the Canadians, the Mexicans, uh, the Europeans have their own societies. We ought to, right now, use whatever connections we have and abilities we have to influence the governments closest to us. So while, while without ignoring uh, international education policy issues, we have to be much more attentive to what's happening with this current administration. What about, what about CIES kind of in the, the World Congress of Comparative Education Societies, which is a um, an umbrella organization where all different societies from around the world come together and and work together uh, and hold a uh, a conference every two years. What what sort of role do you see CIES playing going forward in that Congress? Well, it's a dues-paying member. Uh, it's but we have to be conscious of the World Council's history. It was it was formed largely not in opposition to the USCIS, but to provide alternatives for people in Canada, uh, in Japan. I think these were the two first uh, other comparative education societies, and then elsewhere in the world. So I think that we can be good participants, good citizens, good members of the World Council, but we ought to let others from other parts of the world to play a, play a strong role and set the agenda for that, uh, that body. When you look at the history of CIES as a society. Have you ever thought that there there was a wrong turn that was taken? Um, anything that you disagreed with um, in the direction of CIES? Well, yes. Uh, I, I think that the, uh, the the biggest obvious mistake from the point of view of the memberships, those who've been members for at least more than five years or so, they probably noticed that uh, we lost a newsletter for three years, uh, and this wasn't out of any intention by the the board. It was as I, I don't did you just use the word mistake or wrong turn? It wasn't a conscious wrong turn. It was basically an oversight. People just uh, dropped the ball during the transition from uh, the old model of the secretary treasurer, the secretariat that was at uh, SUNY Albany and before that at Florida International, kind of dropped the ball. Long story short, yes, I think that was that was really a problematic uh, uh, period for us. Uh, the SIGs continued having newsletters. The SIGs continued integrating their membership within uh, their uh, special interest groups. But we, uh, I'm just so glad, and I'm just so grateful to uh, Marion Larson and and those who finally made possible uh, us for us to uh, resurrect this newsletter because I think that's one thing that was really uh, a mistake. I've I've also in one of those newsletters that Marianne Larson's team uh, put out, I read an, um, a little opinion piece by Fran Vavris talking about um, 
the rise of international organizations and international development agencies play, playing um, in CIES. And, and I wanted to know what you thought, what's the proper role of these international agencies in CIES? I read that piece too. I don't have it in front of me right now, but I think what Fran was talking about was not so much the, their presence inside of CIS, but their presence at the their at the um, annual meeting. Their, the the fact that they were uh, what what started out as a, an exhibit for publishers, people bringing books and articles and magazines and so forth to 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 sell, but also just to share with members, became by the time she was writing more of a fair and a kind of a uh, advertisement for different NGOs that were all of course trying to uh, raise their own profiles uh, for completely different reasons not all of them scholarly reasons not all of them uh, in line with the mission of CIS I think that's what she was really uh, concerned about in terms of but in terms of participating in CIS don't forget that these these uh, international agencies and organizations, they're not members of CIS. Only individual human beings can be a member of CIS. Well, university libraries can be too, but uh, those are the only categories of membership. So I think that we have to be open, we want to be open for many people outside of academia uh, and outside of government to join the CIS and many of those jobs and many of those people are indeed working in international organizations, which is wonderful. I think that's a separate question from the one that Fran was raising in that article. What about, what about challenges that you envision um, that the society will have to overcome in, in the next few years? Well, I, I mean, we, you're asking this at a very, uh, very sensitive moment. Uh, I, I guess your your listeners to this these interviews are going to understand that you're you're asking us these questions in the days right after uh, the Trump administration, by decree, uh, blocked entry to the United States of many people, uh, even people at first with permanent residency status, uh, from. Uh, from seven countries, and the reason they were listed as countries, according to Rudolf Giuliani, is because it would have been politically difficult for him to follow through with his uh, original plan to to put a moratorium and stoppage on immigration by Muslims. So rather than do that, this was this was the workaround for that. Uh, we know that everybody knows that. Um, that's why there was such outcry here. That's that's why. Uh, you've seen, I'm sure, uh, even over in Japan, you've se you've seen the images in and in, uh, in airports uh, in front of the White House. Uh, this this is an this is a prohibition against something uh, that's fundamental to CIS, which is the international exchange of information and ideas. The flow of people is related to to the flow of information and ideas. We we have members, dues-paying members from those seven countries that are prohibited now from coming to the United States. I don't know whether any of them were planning on going to uh, the meeting in Atlanta, but they, uh, but, it's, but it's an outrage. It's, it's, it's terribly unjust, and it violates all the principles of CIS. Long story short, Will, uh, you asked me the challenges of the next few years. If you, if you had asked me this maybe uh, a month ago, I might have given you something else. But right, but right now, in, in the heat of this, I really can't see past uh, the fact that the U current U.S. administration is going to present many challenges for all international organizations, not only CIS, but many other allied organizations. Go on the website of NAFSA uh, and you'll, you'll see uh, a, a very uh, a, 
a, a very outspoken statement uh, in opposition to what the this administration is doing. Um, uh, and we, uh, I'm glad to know that we're following suit. These are the these are the main challenges we're going to face in the next few years. Do Do you think the um, the letter that was sent out by the CIS board, the current board, do you think that was outspoken enough? Do you think it went far enough in criticizing the Trump administration's ban? That's a statement of principles, and that's an important and essential first step. Uh, as I uh, mentioned in, in answer to an earlier question of yours, though, I think that uh, other things have to be done. I'll give you, I mean, just, I hate to just personalize this, but I mean, just in my own life, I've been a participant of several other organizations that have done exactly what CIS did. But uh, I used the example of my own uh, Jewish synagogue. Uh, we, we also had a similar statement, but we but we have then the all the phone numbers and all the ways to contact uh, representatives in Washington and here in central Pennsylvania and we asked members to do something about it. We didn't just announce that we the board believes this and we feel such and such which is important it has to it has to be said um, so yes I think I think it, it, it's very important uh, that the board has done this it's only the second time that the board has made any kind of a political statement in the last few years uh, and uh, the next step is going to be organizing and getting getting members involved and showing them what they need what they can do and yesterday i i saw online that there's a petition um for academics to protest going to the u.s for any conference because of this uh ban and i've noticed that um a few members of the cis uh society have have signed their name onto that petition how would you respond as a president or vice president of the Comparative Education Society when you see members basically saying we're not going to be attending the main event of the society? Um, your, your question has two parts. and I'll, I'll answer the part that you, that you meant to ask me first. Uh, I would uh, state to those people that we need you. We, we need you here. We need your we need your bodies. We need your support to present a strong international front uh, against the policies of this administration. Uh, we are the opposite of isolationists. We're internationalists, and we need you to be on our side because we can't do it alone. Uh, so I think that that's, uh, I, I don't think that, uh, I, th I think that boycotting an organization that is your ally is exactly the wrong way to go. You. Embedded in your question, though, there's something else that I, I was hoping you would bring up, and, and uh, you've br you brought it up indirectly when you talk about uh, the annual conference being our main event. I'm a little bit uneasy about putting all of our eggs in one basket and about having so much attention to this event. And this, this year it'll be uh, in Atlanta, next year it'll be in Mexico City. They're great. I love these, these conferences. I never miss them. Uh, they're an important part of my year, too. But I don't think that that has to be the main thing that CIS does. Uh, I mean, for one thing, the other main thing we do is we subsidize uh, the Comparative Education Review, which is great. And uh, since Marianne Larson has uh, resurrected the newsletter, we publish a newsletter. But we can be much more than that. We can be much more than a conference organization. So the types of, the types of actions, the types of con uh, concerted energies that I'm, I'm hoping to uh, hoping to organize if I'm 
uh, lucky enough to become uh, a vice president, later president, uh, will be not so much centered around the meeting because I think that that's already in good shape, but we'll, uh, we'll find other main things to do besides have a meeting. So let's let's envision and you know imagine ten years from now after the Trump administration uh, is long gone, um, how or where do you see CIS? Like what are the activities it's doing? Um, how would you how would you envision the society, the state of the society in ten years? I'd like it to institutionalize some of the energies and maybe passions that I hear now. Uh, in my own answers to your questions and also in, in my colleagues, to institutionalize those so that there's a more or less permanent place for CIS in Washington and at the World Bank and in other decision-making uh, institutions, starting here at home. Uh, of course, we, we can't, as I mentioned earlier, we can't ever uh, drop the ball and lose sight of the international education policy issues that we know are so important. But we need to become more active here in the United States. Currently, uh, Will, in Washington, you go to Washington, you ask anybody to name an organiza educational organization called CIES, and you know what? The first thing they think of is the Council for the International Exchange of Scholars, now that which manages Fulbright. Now, the point is not I don't want to change our name, but I would like to at least be some part of the picture so that people at least know who we are. Right now, the only people who even know what CIS is are the members, the dues-paying members of this CIS. We're, we're much smaller than NAFSA, but eventually we could follow their lead or even ally uh, CIS with them to support some of the same legislation. Um, we believe in educational diplomacy and soft power. Uh, that is behind student exchange. And many of us have benefited from Fulbright scholarships. All this is soon going to be attacked under this administration. The budgets are going to be cut. And a nationalist, as opposed to an internationalist agenda, is going to come about. When the Trump administration is finally gone, I hope that the CIS has become more than a conference organization, that it has a permanent place in the decision-making apparatus in the US government and in international bodies. Well, David Post, thanks so much for joining Fresh Ed, and best of luck in the voting. Okay, thanks so much for having me, Will. Take care now. David Post is professor of education at Pennsylvania State University. I hope this show has given you a bit more insight into the two candidates running for vice president of CIES this year. Remember, you only have 11 more days to vote. All active CIES members should have received an email ballot via Election Buddy. You can check out freshedpodcast.com for details about the election. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed's assistant producers are Sherry Yang and Yuval DeVere. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It helps. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Thanks for listening. 
I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.